half, I'd like to read the first half of chapter 15. Rather long chapter. So let me read the first half of uh, chapter 15 with you. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. His people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell them, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivalah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, um, Saul came to, to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. We can see a problem there, can't we? a monument for himself, and, and, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? By the way, that's the second time he's reminded him of that. He did the first time was in verse 1. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Father, we're grateful for Your word. Lord, we, we confess, Lord, this, this very moment, we, we, we greatly, uh, Lord, need You. We need You, God, to open our eyes, to help us to, uh, not only to intellectually understand, Lord, but to, uh, Lord, for this Word to, to find a resting place inside of us, for, for this Word to impact our lives, for, for us to be different, Lord, as a result of having read it and studied it. God, unless You teach, Lord, we can't know, we can't, we can't understand. So, Lord, we pray, as we've already prayed this morning, Lord, that You would indeed open our eyes to reveal great truths from Your law, that Your people, Lord, would never be the same because of it. Thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You for the grace of Your Word. I pray, Father, that um, we would, like uh, Saul was encouraged to do so, that we too would listen to Your words. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I'm entitled this message, Mission disobedience mission disobedience really the, the kind of the theme of the whole chapter right a mission disobedience God had sent Saul on this mission this death mission and he was partially obedient uh, but you got, you know partial obedience is full disobedience right to God this is a new section of material right Saul has uh, Saul is uh, his Continuing reign has already been rejected by God. And of course, this chapter is going to continue to affirm what we already knew in the previous chapters. And of course, his, his continuing reign rejected. Now his, his present reign is rejected by God here in this particular chapter. It really is the end, if you will, the beginning of the end for Saul and the beginning of the rise of, of King David we're going to see here in the, in the next chapters. This section is, listen, a major disaster both for Saul and all of Israel. I mean, if it wasn't, why, why is Samuel so upset at the end of the chapter? We find him weeping right at the end of the, of the chapter, chapter 15. Samuel's pretty upset about the whole ordeal. I think probably we should be as well. Verse 1 sets the theme for this whole chapter, I think. It says, it says there in, in, in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, uh, The Lord sent me to anoint you, the king, over the people, Israel. Now therefore, here it is, listen to the words of the Lord. I mean, that, that does. It sets the tone for the whole chapter. Listen to the words of the Lord, right? That, that word listen, it can mean hear, it can, it can mean obey. I mean, that's the idea. Obey the words of the Lord. In, in other words, Saul, you're the, you're the king. You're the one that God chose. You're the one that God anointed as king over Israel. You, you serve under King Jehovah, therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel here is simply reminding Saul of these, of these truths, right? God picked you. God placed you here. Now, now obey the voice of the Lord. You serve Jehovah's purposes. Now, and can we just pause right here and just say that... The application is immediate, isn't it? We too serve the purposes of our God, right? We too serve God. I mean, hasn't God made us a kingdom of, of priests to our God, right? Hasn't He chosen us? Don't we, like Saul, also need to be constantly reminded of that? That God chose us. 
Therefore, we too need to listen to the Word of the Lord. I I like uh, Peter there in his second letter. He says, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. This is not going to be a revolutionary truth for you today, but I hope a wonderful reminder to the church that we serve our God as well. We must listen to the Word of the Lord because of who we are in Christ. We need to be reminded of who we are and who we serve. We need to be reminded that it is our God who regulates our activities. He sets our marching orders, in other words. His Word determines our activities, our duties, right? This is really the first priority of every true servant of the Lord. We can't call Jesus Lord and then disobey. It's a contradiction, you understand? I love Joshua. When the people of Israel first came into the land, Joshua reminded them of this truth when he said, "...only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses that my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it." I mean, and had not Samuel, just three chapters earlier, back there in chapter 12, reminded both Israel and the king of the same truth. Here's what he says. He says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. (laughs) But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king, he said. Listen, obeying the voice of God is important. Can I say it this way? It's important to God. It's important for God's people to obey His voice. Yeah. And it's important, listen, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's important for our own well-being. It's important for our success as a church or as an individual believer. Unless we think this is some sort of Old Testament kind of thing, let's just go to the half-brother of our Lord, James, who wrote this, "...but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like." But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being a hearer, uh, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, he says. Yeah. Listen, this is, this is I think, always on Sunday mornings, isn't it? It's a great time to think about whose voice we're listening to. Who is it that's giving us the direction of our life? Who is it that's telling us what we ought to be about day by day by day? Right? The Lord. Uh, the Hebrew word there for, for listen there in the text there is the word, is the word sama. It, it, it means, again, to listen or, or to obey or, or to hear. And, and it really occurs some eight times there in the Hebrew text. You don't see it in the English. But you get the idea that, that God thinks this is pretty important. We ought to listen to the voice of the Lord. God is serious about His obedience. And again, listen, He's not giving good suggestions. He's not giving many multiple good options by which we can work or do. No, God says, this is my word, do it. 
I am so thankful for our church. So thankful for our church that, that we have a church, a, a group of people here that are, have just decided, listen, whatever the Bible says, whatever God says, that's what we want to do. Yes. Now, isn't it a struggle? It's hard sometimes, isn't it? Yes. It's a challenge for us day by day. But I hope more and more we're committed to that. Whatever God says, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be a part of that. We're going to be a part of what God says. We're going to be obedient. When God says, listen... When the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, those of us in covenant with God need to sit up straight. We need to listen very carefully to the voice of our Lord. If we're really serious about seeking the kingdom, right? Seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we have to know what our King commands. We need to know what our King says and then submit to it. This This is really the matter that matters most in this chapter. Listening to the voice of the Lord. Obeying the voice of the Lord. Now, I'm done with the introduction. Are you ready? I'm not even going to talk about obedience. (laughs) Because there's another issue I want to deal with here. Now, we're going to get to this theme eventually, this, this uh, uh, mission disobedience. We're going to get to that. Uh, we're, we're not going to get very far in this chapter today because I want to deal with God and what it is that He asks Saul to do. It's hard, isn't it? You see it? It's hard. Uh, we aren't going to go, we're, we're not going to get to Saul's disobedience. We're, we're not going to get to God's regret. There's another issue we're going to have to deal with at some point. But I want to talk about this mission given to Saul. And I want to take some time to defend the truth that God has the right to life and death for all people. Yes. Do you hear me? God has the right to life and death for all people. And, and I want to say this to you right up front. I know God doesn't need me to defend Him. I mean, He's God. I mean, how in the world is a little, little a peon man like me going to defend the great God of the universe, right? God doesn't need that. But my hope is that I can help you and even myself to think rightly about these things. And so just looking at verses 2 and 3 this morning, let's read about this mission of death. This mission of death. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Remember, when we hear those words, what does the church need to do? Sit up straight, listen very carefully. Here it is. I have noted... Wow. When God notes something, we need to note it. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. He begins there in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts. I mean, even, even if you just stopped right there, right? This is, this is the Lord of, the, of armies. This is the God of the armies of heaven and Israel. I mean, you get the idea immediately that this mission uh, is not going to be like a, a week-long sort of uh, uh, cushy mission trip to Hawaii somewhere, right? This is, this is not what's getting ready to happen here. No, this is going to be a hard trip, right? This is going to be a, a different trip. It, it, it is a mission of death, isn't it? It's a mission of vengeance. It's a mission of wrath. A mission of the full annihilation of the Amalekites. Now, some folks would immediately uh, be bothered more, I think, by God's severity here than by Saul's disobedience. Yeah. 
Well, I want to take time to defend our God. I want to take time to defend the truth that God has the right to do whatever He wishes, whenever He he wishes, with whomever He wishes. Right? Some folks will say that, that... that this can't be the word of the Lord, whose compassion is over all that He's made. That's from the Psalms. This is a hard thing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think if anybody that reads it, you don't see that this is a hard thing, that there's something wrong. This is a hard thing. But our claim, listen, is that Scripture is true. Not that it's always sanitized. Or not that it's always easy to swallow. But that Scripture is true. You understand? It's true. There it is. And I want to say this out front, that our Lord's vengeance ought to be praised because His vengeance is always a pure vengeance. His his vengeance is always a just vengeance. His vengeance is always a virtuous vengeance. This is our God. He can't be anything other than those things. Immediately, most, most people would say, well... Is there more? Oh, they love, they love pastors then to kind of re-explain or, or kind of reinterpret or turn it somehow to make it more palatable for people. There's no way to make this more palatable. Right. I can't clean this up for you. Here it is. In all of its ugly truth for us, right? And yet somehow there is a, there is a glorious beauty in it because it's coming from God Himself. Hmm. Again, most modern people would say, is there more? Let us in on the way God is going to swoop in at the last moment and at least spare the women, children, and maybe a puppy or two. But there is no hint of mercy here, is there? Not for the Amalekites. I mean, the Kenites are shown mercy, we see later on the story. But the people of Amalek, there's no ram caught in the thicket for them. There's no substitutionary lamb for the Amalekites. I think this is hard for a lot of people to stomach about our God. But I don't want you to be confused. This is our God. I don't want you to make the mistake that so many make and think that God's not just in this. That somehow we know best or what is fair in these situations. I mean, doesn't Saul think he knows what's best in this situation? It didn't work out well for him either. Or or I don't want you to think that humanity is somehow more civilized or more merciful or, or, or even more kinder than this Amalekite killing God. Do you understand? I don't want you to think that way. You can't think that way. If we object to these kinds of things, we can be sure that it's us who are not seeing clearly. I want to just remind you of just a few truths about our God. And the first truth that I want you to see, and it's found in really the first book of the Bible, in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first truth I think we need to get our minds around and, and to embrace is that God's a creator. He's the creator. He's the creator of all that is, right? Everything was made by Him and for Him and through Him, right? Everything. And as the creator, listen, He gets to decide who or what lives or dies. I spoke to you on James chapter 4 not too long ago, which said, if the Lord wills, what? We will live. If He doesn't will, we won't live. Yeah, little, little, listen, little self-determinate creature down here uh, likes to think that he controls his own destiny. But we don't. Amen. We learned all the way back there in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to the grave and He raises up. This is God. This is what He does. 
And this is why, listen, let me just kind of side note here. This is why murder and suicide and abortion are such alarming sins. Because they supplant the singular right of the Creator over life and death. Amen. Some may argue... Doesn't government control the sword? And and the answer is yes, because God gave them that. Romans 13. God gave them that authority. In fact, we see that here in 1 Samuel 15. God tells Samuel, take up the sword. Right? He's the king of Israel. As the creator, listen, he's he's not only the creator, but as the creator, he's also the lawgiver. God himself governs both the moral and the natural laws of his universe. I mean, even people who don't have the Bible are held accountable to this. For he, he reveals these things about Himself, both in their conscience and in the things that are created in creation through natural revelation. Therefore, they're held accountable for that. And one of the laws that He gave to His creatures says, the soul sins what? Shall die. Or we could say it this way, Paul says to the Romans, for the wages of sin is death. And we brutes, listen, we we brutes whose minds are exceedingly slanted in our own favor do not get to decide what sin is. God decides. And He also tells us that all have sinned. No exception. There is none righteous, He says, that that humanity, Jew and Gentile, are altogether ignorant that no one seeks God, that we are universally wayward, that we are comprehensively worthless, that no one does good, not even one. And as Pastor Eric has said to you in many times in many ways, all means all. Yeah. And so sin brings death to who? To all. No exceptions because all have sinned. I mean, this is a pretty negative and grim picture of mankind apart from God, isn't it? But it's the truth. I mean, we could go on about how mankind has a throat like an open grave, a tongue to deceive, venom of a snake under their lips, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and there's no peace and no fear of God. And some folks will be sitting here objecting to this, saying, I'm not that bad, and that's because you don't understand your own heart, and you don't understand the holiness of God. This is God's assessment of humanity. If you want to study it in Romans 3, you could spend a lifetime meditating on that. Maybe it will give us a clear picture of who we are. I mean, even the great Apostle Paul, when he thought about his own life, right, his own flesh, even as a believer, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, what nothing good dwells. I mean, this was the great Apostle. After conversion. And listen, let let me give you a little gospel. You need this. And if it wasn't for a sinless substitute to die in our place, we too would suffer a fate, a death, worse than the Amalekites and be wholly deserving of it. Amen. Usually people who object to God killing people have a way too high view of humanity and a way too low view of God. They think that somehow humanity is born in this world as sort of, sort of neutral, right? Sort of not good, not bad. And as they age, they either choose good or choose bad. But this is not the case. This is not what the Bible affirms about humanity. Man is born a sinner, and unless he's born again according to Christ, he will not see the kingdom of God. Amen. He is by nature, that is by virtue of being born, he is a sinner. He's an enemy of God. He is lost. He's corrupt. And his sin options, listen, are only limited by his underdeveloped and depraved minds. Yes. You see, sin is more than just the acts that we commit. Right? It, 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 is, it is a spiritual disease infecting everyone who was born into this world and for which mankind has no cure. 
No cure. And for which, by the way, God requires a capital punishment. A messy and eternal death. Romans 5.12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, he says. Someone may object again and say, What about little children, Pastor? What about our sweet, little, innocent little children? Well, what about them? Let's read a few verses about them. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, Folly is bound up where? In the heart of a child. David said of himself, Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, he said. What about Psalm 58, verse 3? Even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. I mean, what does that do to the idea that people say, Children are so honest. <laughs> or or how, about, how about Ephesians 2, 3? That before we were saved, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humanity, it says. Notice that, 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 that by nature children of wrath. Notice we were deserving of wrath not just because of our actions, but because of our nature, our birth. Yes. Simply because we were born into this world, we are children of wrath. Yes. That is a nature inherited from Adam. Yes. We are sinners by birth. And one of the consequences of feeding your children is that they then become grown-up sinners. Yeah. <laughs> Please feed your children. Please. Yeah. But children are so innocent, people will say. What I think you mean is naive. Yes. And there's a big difference between being naive and being innocent. Yes. Don't confuse the two. And don't we know this from experience? I mean, even apart from the Scripture, don't we know this? Those of us who have children, we know this, right? Our little children are little sinners. I mean, you don't have to teach your children to be bad. We have to teach them what? To be good. To do the right thing. We have to teach them right. We have to tell them about the boundaries, right? They too are bound up in their sin. I remember catching my children doing things that they had clearly been taught. We'd given them the information. We'd given them the instruction. And they would still do things that we told them not to do. I remember walking in on my children doing things that they shouldn't be doing and immediately the little little ones, right? Little, little tiny ones. And they would look at you and say, no, 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 no. Why did they do that? And it wasn't an information problem. Right. They knew they weren't supposed to be touching that or doing those things. It wasn't an information problem. It was a will problem. Yeah. It was a nature problem. Yeah. That was the issue. They naturally touch things they're not supposed to. They naturally cry and scream to get their way. They naturally rebel against a diaper change or food they don't want or food they didn't get but do want, right? They, they want what they want when they want it. They're just like us, by the way. They naturally hit and kick and argue. You guys may remember the little kid who, who kicked and hit and poked his sister right in her favorite eye. And, uh, and, the, and the mom was so alarmed that she said, Oh, I can't believe that he did this. You know, my, my sweet little innocent little boy, I can't believe he did this thing. Something outside of him must have influenced him to do that. And so she approaches her son and she said, she said Oh, the devil must have made you do that. And he said, Mama, he said, the devil made me hit and kick her, but it poking her in the eye was all my idea. <laughs> isn't it true though? Isn't it true? It, listen, it, it is inside them, isn't it? Yes. They don't have to have any outside influences. No, the Bible defends the truth that in each person born into this world lies a naturally stubborn, willful, sinful little heart quite capable of the worst offenses against our God. And God, listen, and I know this is hard, but listen, God would be completely justified in wiping off the face of this planet every man, woman, boy, or girl, or infant. Amen. 
but how patient is our God with sinners? Think about it. He is long-suffering with rebel creatures like me and like you. I had someone argue with me one time. I was talking about this. And, and they said, I wouldn't do such an awful thing. That is like, you know, wipe out um, um, you know, the whole world in a flood or something, something like that. And, I, and my response was, well, that's because you're not God. <laughs> you, you shouldn't do something like that, Right? Yeah, you're not holy like God is holy. You're not concerned to defend the honor of your own holiness. Listen, I, I want to remind you, God is a holy God, and again would be, would be just in destroying the entire universe. And it, and it, is, an, and it, it is an amazing mercy that He spares any of us. Yeah, amen. Any of us. I don't think we quite grasp the sobering, listen, the terrifying, and the just wrath of our God. And you may say, this doctrine, this God doesn't make me feel comfortable. Well, listen, if you've not embraced this God, I am quite sure He doesn't want you to be comfortable with this. Because you are the object of His wrath. You shouldn't be comfortable. I hear people say, I hear people say this all the time when we talk like this. Well, my God wouldn't do such a thing. Well, it's clearly that that person has not embraced the God of the Bible. Remember, listen, remember my brothers and sisters, this is the God who wiped out the entire human race and all of its inhabitants apart from a rescue boat in a flood. Remember? Yeah. And is the God who will in the last day again cleanse this earth with fire, killing all of its inhabitants except His elect? Yeah. So listen, this, this, these objections, listen, this is, this is not inconsistent with, with, with how God acts in history. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is not inconsistent with this, with this God, right? Hmm. What about Jesus, people will say. What about Jesus, people love to ask. He's not like that Old Testament angry God. And I hate it when people do this. Somehow they create two Bibles and they really create two gods. This sort of angry Old Testament God, you know, the Bible one, and then this this lowly Jesus, the, the New Testament God. Right? You, I mean, you created two Bibles and now you've created two gods. And people love the lowly Jesus, don't they? Right? There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. And, and that's a truth. That's a truth of Him. Right? But He's more than that. And they love the healing Jesus, but they forget. Listen, Jesus is our God. Yes. This is Jesus in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Yes. This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. Yes. And Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Yes. They forget, right? He is Jehovah. He's the God who will enact judgment on the world of unbelievers in the last day, who when He comes again with His eyes a flame of fire and with a robe dipped in blood and with a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, when He comes, He will tread the winepress winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That's Revelation 19. Read it for yourself. We need to adjust our thinking about our God. He's not the God who gives a participation trophy for everybody who comes into the world. He's not the God who declares everyone in this world a winner. No, listen. All men are sinners and deserving of no less than an eternal hell separated separated from Him from all eternity. But He is a long-suffering God who has endured with sinful men for millennia. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and will to His praise spare a few. 
He's not the God of the rebellious religious masses. But He will, by His grace, save some to His own praise. Listen, if you object to this kind of teaching, this kind of stuff, listen, you're in good company probably. I mean, the apostles objected to the same thing. I mean, when Jesus was talking this kind of way, this kind of narrow kind of speaking, you know, about only a few being saved and, 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 and these kind of things, what did they say? Who then can be saved? And of course, we love the words of Jesus, don't we? Well, with man, what? It's impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been in on the Kenite conversation the night after the Amalekites were wiped out? Sitting around the fire that night, you know, after the Amalekites had been destroyed. I mean, I don't know what was said there. I don't know what the conversation was like. But if I would have been there, I would have been praising the mercy of of the Israelite God for sparing them. He didn't have to, and He did. Let me give you some hope. Let me give you a little gospel at this point. Some of you may be taking a deep breath, but here it is. Whoever you are today, whoever you are, if you're willing to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you too can be spared from the wrath of God. Isn't that good news? But i got to tell you, if you harden your heart against Him, don't think to yourself, surely there's another God. Surely there's another way. No, Jesus said, I'm the way. There's one narrow way. There's only one way. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus is the way. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. The judgment of God, listen, is coming and will fall on the world, this world, once again one day. But today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Then, then, and that day, it'll be eternally too late. And so today, whoever you are today, if you're here today and you're lost, and you're here today and you know you're under the wrath of God, I want to plead with you, I beg with you, be reconciled to God, repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Saved from God's wrath. It's coming. It's coming again. Well... We need to get back to Saul and those Amalekites, don't we? Let me, uh, let me draw your attention back to the text there. I've got a couple of really weird transitions in this message, but here, here's one of them. But let me kind of move us back to the text here. Um, notice, notice the mission once again there. Verse 2. What does it say? Thus says the Lord of hosts. So who's giving the mission? God is giving the mission. Right? It's God who gives the mission to Saul through Samuel. And there's no ambiguity in the mission. Isn't that good? God's clear. Samuel's clear about the task. It's not easy, but it is clear. And, and again, I, wanna, I, want, I want you to, to make sure you think rightly. Let's not think of those Amalekites as sort of innocent victims of a selfish God. God is good, and He does good, and can only do that which is good and right. And by the way, the defense of God's actions is actually found in the text. Again, God doesn't owe us or them a defense of His actions, but here they are in verse 2 once again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted. And listen, when the Bible says God noted something, we ought to note what God notes. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. This is his justification. So this is a punishment. This is a vengeance, which by the way belongs to the Lord. It is for what they did to Israel when they came up out of the land. And don't get excited. Some people say, why is he punishing them for what a generation 
300 years before them did. Don't get excited. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners. Present tense. Right? So don't think that God is necessarily punishing them for something that happened 300 years ago. They were presently sinners. For 300 years, they continued in rebellion generation after generation after generation after generation. And verse 33 reminds us about their king, Agag, too. It says, your sword has made women childless. This is what we know from the text about the Amalekites. History does not paint a very, very, picture, a very pretty picture of these Amalekites. You can certainly do your own research on these folks. But God is contending that His vengeance is just. They had attacked Israel even before they had arrived in Sinai. And Moses remembers back there in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it was a dirty attack. You can read about it for yourself. And so they presently were a godless and a wicked people. And for this, Amalek was to be wiped out. They were to be annihilated. And for those who say, no, this is genocide. No, this is protection for God's people. This is not racial hatred. This is divine retribution. This is long-suffering Jehovah who gave them 300 years to repent and they would not. They would not. And let me defend the idea that there is a comfort in this for God's people. Did you hear me? There's a comfort in this for God's people. Think about it. I mean, anybody that's ever been bullied, it's nice to walk with somebody bigger than you. Right? Yeah. I think there's room for the church to rejoice in this along with every other perfection of our God. And, and, and so, so I want to I defend that idea that I think there's room for rejoicing. I think there's comfort. And then lastly, and, and I know where time is moving, but I want to take time to do this. I'll be done in uh, a few hours. Yeah, I don't have a watch on, but I do have a clock flashing in front of me there. But I want to just do these two final things to encourage you that there's a comfort in this for God's people. And then I want to make a distinction between Saul's mission and our mission. And I think maybe it's not so important for our African friends, but I think it's important for Americans to hear this about our mission. But let me first defend this idea that I think there's a comfort in this for God's people. There's a comfort that one day there will be no more Amalekites waiting to, to attack God's people. There's a comfort for God's people that one day there will be no more murderers, no more liars, no more child molesters, no more extortioners, no more false prophets, no more cruel wolves in sheep's clothing coming to oppress God's flock, no more wicked Amalekite kings making widows. Can we not say there is a place for us to rejoice in that, that one day God is going to destroy all of that and all those who do those kinds of things? There's a comfort for God's people in His vengeance. Our Lord, listen, does not forget those who oppress, kill, or hurt His people. He's looking out for us, folks. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4, See, your God will come with vengeance. This was a verse meant to comfort God's people. Yeah, He will protect and defend those who are His. He will put down and destroy all those who try to destroy His people. There's a comfort in that. Think about it. I mean, if He doesn't do that, I mean, what hope do we have? And I want to say this to you, a new heaven and a new earth are not just a reward for the believer, but they are an escape from the wicked. God's vengeance means 
escape for us. No vengeance from God means no deliverance from those who hate us and want to hurt us. The full gospel always proclaims the year, uh, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of His vengeance. His people enjoy His favor. His enemies receive His wrath. Right? There's a comfort in that. And I, I, maybe, maybe we Americans don't understand that like we should, but suffering people understand that. Yes. Right? If you've ever been hurt by someone else, if you've ever been bullied or unjustly, unfairly, because of your faith, I mean, not because you did something stupid, but because of your faith, because you were living out your faith before the Lord, if you've ever gone through something, some difficulty, some trial, some persecution, you get that. One, one day God's going to set all that right. He's going to set all that straight. Hmm. Hmm. You know the joy of being set free from that if you've suffered. It was the prayers of the saints in Revelation chapter 6. Listen to what they said. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign and holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Paul... Paul encouraged the Thessalonians with a very similar thing. He said, he said um, uh, when God takes uh, 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 vengeance on, on your enemies, you, then you will find relief. Here's what he says. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's a comfort in that, he says. God notes those who oppress His people. He marks them for wrath. wrath. And, I, and I think there is a place for rejoicing for God's people who have been oppressed, who have been killed, who have been tortured. Now, I don't mean delighting in the death of the wicked. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. I mean deliverance from evil men's murders and their persecutions and their afflictions on God's people and rejoicing that God is glorified in doing so. Some of you have uh, dogs. I know my, my sister Laverne back there has a... We call him a, a, a lion, but uh, he's, a, he's sort of a, a Rhodesian Ridgeback uh, crossbreed with an African lion, I think, or something. He's huge. Some of you have been there. You, you know what I'm talking about. She don't have a sign that says, Beware of dog, because... because Diesel's right there barking at the gate and, and uh, I think she kind of secretly wants someone to, uh, to get nipped in the, in the, in the backside who's trying to break in her house. But uh, we'll talk about that later. But, uh, but anyway, some, people, some of you have a, a sign that says beware of dog. Maybe the sign that needs to be on Jehovah's kingdom is beware of flock. And world leaders need to take notice and beware because the shepherd of the flock is taking note of those who oppress His sheep. Mm. Amen? Amen? The shepherd of the flock is taking notes. I think we can take comfort that God will one day free His suffering people by His wrath on those who oppress them. Well, here's another one of those awkward transitions, but let me, let me do this. Let me pause and do this. We need to talk about our mission. Because it's very different from Saul's mission, isn't it? I need to remind you that vengeance belongs to who? The Lord. That's right. In 1 Samuel, listen, 1 Samuel chapter 15 is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to carry out God's wrath. I mean, that was the mission given to Saul. It's not the mission of the church. This passage, listen, is not an example for the church on how to enact vengeance on our enemies. It's not a paradigm for how we deal with oppressive leaders. 
you can't say with integrity uh, that God told you to burn all your abusive husband's stuff and then feed him poisonous mushrooms. You, you, can't, you can't say that. All right? you, you, you can't organize a militia for overthrowing the oppressive government. We're the church. We have a different mission in the world. Remember, this was a time of national world war. This was a time of, of conquest for Israel. God had commanded that. And there's no application for the church after that manner. We can't look at a passage like this and apply it to the church's activity in the world and, and, and see it as a sort of a call to take up arms, if you will. And there are many in the church who will take a passage like this and say, See, they fought. They made war against their enemies. But we're not the nation of Israel. Yes. We are the church. Now listen, to this is key. We are an international community. Yes. I mean, just look in this room right here. I mean, who are we going to go to war with? Do you understand? We have, we have people from Africa. We have people from Mexico. We have people from America. We have people from all over the place. We are the church. We are an international community. Do you understand? Yes. That's, that's key for our understanding of this. And God has already given us our marching orders, has He not? We have a different mission. Where Saul's was a mission of death, ours is a mission of life. Yes. 2,000 years ago, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, sent His Son to earth on a new kind of mission. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't go and kill His enemies, but He would come and He would die for them. Yes. That, that, that those who would surrender, He would bring into the very family of His Father. Think about that. God's people had entered a new era. And until His crucified and risen and reigning Son returns to earth in glory, God will no longer go out among the armies of His people with the weapons of this world. That Old Testament period of holy war is over. There are no nations. You hear me? There are no peoples. There are no tribes to be defeated. Why? Because the crucified Lamb has ransomed a people. What? Where? From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. The enemy is not nations. It's not peoples. This may have a surprise to you. It's not Democrats or Republicans or Russians or Afghanistanis or whatever they're called, right? Afghans or Mexicans that are crossing our border. They're not our enemies. Do you understand? Yeah. The sin, listen, the enemy is much, much closer to home. The enemy is sin. The enemy is the flesh. The enemy is Satan and all of his host of demons. For now, until he comes again, there is no trumpet summoning God's people to sword and shield and chariots and horses. Instead, the God of armies has dispatched his ambassadors. That's you. That's me. And what are we doing? We're going out into the world and we're pleading with people, be reconciled to God. Christ pleading through his people, be reconciled to God. For now, listen, this is a favorable time. This is the day of salvation. For now, until the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, until then, the followers of the Lamb are called to imitate their Master. Right? And how did our Master act? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His footsteps. When reviled, what do we do? We bless. Yes. When, when persecuted, what do we do? We endure. When slandered, what do we do? We, we appeal, right? That's what we do. For now, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, how effective is a metal sword against an enemy you can't see? 
How many, how many AR-15s and Glocks and Smith and Wessons do we need to defeat, to defeat this, this invisible enemy? You, you can't have enough, people. You can't have enough. Mm. For now, until Christ appears a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him, until then the Lord declares my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, what? My, my people would be fighting. My servants would be fighting. Once He led His armies in a holy war at the head of Israel. At the end of the age, He will take up arms again. But now, now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of pardon. Today is the day of reconciliation. Today is the day of triumph through suffering of His church. And so we have a different mission. I mean, we could argue it's just as hard, right? Just as hard to go to a world that hates you with a message that most people will reject and some people will violently oppose. I mean, that's, that's hard. Worldwide evangelism and discipleship is hard, isn't it? But obedience is just as vital. God ordained and commanded the destruction of the Amalekites, but, but He also ordained the means by which that was to happen. Saul and Israel, Israel was to be the means by which God would accomplish the mission. Obedience was vital. In the same way, folks, God has commanded worldwide evangelism and discipleship and ordained us as the means by which He would accomplish that. Our obedience is vital to the mission. And folks, I, I, I know this, and I know some of you are sitting here and thinking maybe this is, man, this is, this is huge. And I know that perfect obedience will never be possible until we're with Him and we're made like Him. But for those of us, listen, for those of us like me who fail daily... Praise be to God, we have an advocate with the Father. Yes. We have one who pleads for us. Jesus Christ the righteous, whose perfect active obedience has been credited to us, has been imputed to us. Praise God, we have escaped the vengeance of our God through Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that 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 gracious and life-changing truth, the gospel, would train us, would teach us, that we, would use, that we wouldn't use grace as an excuse for disobedience, that we would, as we were encouraged in the first verse, that we would listen to the words of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus chapter 2. We're going to see next time that Saul wasn't that concerned with obeying God. He forgot the grace of God in choosing him as king. I pray you won't forget the grace of God you've been given. Our God, our Father, we acknowledge that You are God and have the right to life and death. We affirm that every decision You make is good and right. We thank You for the comfort that You People have both in grace and in wrath. Forgive our wrong thinking and our often disobedience. We thank You for the grace that is ours in Jesus and for the sweet restoring forgiveness through Your Son. To the praise of Your name we pray.
Amen. Amen. Amen.